we were nearly to the bottom of this timeline last Sunday night. We've been talking about how we got to have a Bible in our hand, and I do agree with what was said this morning. I went down to the bookstore and bought a Bible, and that's good. I knew that's how I got my Bible, but as I'm wanted to continue on with this, but before I do, if you have your Bible with you, or a pew Bible, the same will work, either one. Psalm 12, if you'll turn there, first, first turn to Genesis chapter 3, I'm sorry, two verses, and if you can't turn to it, it's okay, you'll know these verses, they're very familiar. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe the Bible? Okay. So what the Bible says is true and right, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 says, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. That's a lie. It's a lie that is accurately recorded under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit in the Bible, but it's a lie. If all you read was, you shall not surely die, and you said, that's in the Bible, we're good, let's go do whatever we want to do, you'd be taking something we call out of context. The context is the passage before and after, the whole chapter, the book it's in, who it's written to, who it's written from, and the context matters. It's really a bad plan to look at a verse without considering the context. Now look at Psalm 12. I'm going to mention this. Um, you know there are some folks that teach that if you use any Bible other than the King James Bible, God is not going to bless you. We are not in that group. We use the King James Bible here. We believe the King James Bible to be the best English translation. That's why we use it. There are other translations that are usable. There are weaknesses in all of them. But some folks who take the extreme on the other side say, you can't be blessed by God if you don't use the King James. They have very little scripture to support their position. They like to say that if God gave the word by inspiration, then God preserves the word. I don't know, five or six years ago, Dr. Arnold came into my little office in the back before I moved to my big office, and he asked me that question. He says, Mr. Gilbert, do you believe that God has preserved his word? And he was a serious question asker, and I was going to be a serious question answerer and I thought about it, and I said, Dr. Arnold, I believe God has preserved his word. I believe it's true, but I don't believe it's biblical. I believe a number of things that are true but are not biblical. I believe we have red carpet in this church, more or less. <laughs> That's true, but it's not biblical. It's not anti-biblical, it's just not in the Bible. Thou shalt have red carpet in Calvary Community Church. I believe the idea that God has had his hand in and preserved the word of God as it's come down to us through the centuries, that's what we're studying tonight, I think he's involved. I think the overwhelming evidence is God stayed involved. 
but there is no promise in the Bible about the preservation of the word like there is about the giving of the word by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I tried to quote that last week and I had to get Dr. Myers to help me. But there is, there is this one verse in Psalm 12 that if you read it and pretend it's not in a context, you might get an idea like those folks that say the King James Bible is the preserved word of God. If you only read verse 6, and I'm going to read verse 6, but then we're going to look at the context. Verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And you, if you don't look at the verses before that, and you don't look at the rest of the, the psalm, you might get the idea that that's a promise from God that he's going to preserve his word. You're misreading some of the pronouns in those two verses because you didn't read the context. Now you know how they abuse it, but I would like to show you what it actually says, and then you can think about it and decide for yourself. The psalm begins, it says it's upon Sheminith. And if you look at the Schofield note and follow it over to Psalm 6, there he has a note that says that means on octaves. It's an eighth. So this song is played on octaves somehow. That's what it means. It's a musical notation. No big deal. A Psalm of David. And the psalm begins, Help, Lord, help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. We got a shortage of good people. The godly man ceases, the faithful have failed from among the children of men. So there's these other people around, verse 2. They, and this they shows up a couple, a number of times here, they, the people that we do have, they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. You can't tell if they're going to say one thing or the other thing, a double tongue. Speak with forked tongue, I think. Number three, verse 3 says, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips. There's judgment coming. And the tongue that speaketh proud things, those, them, those bad guys, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? There's the bad group of people. Remember, it started off saying the good people are kind of getting thin. There are not enough of them around. And these bad people, they're just overwhelming and, and aggressive and bad. Verse 5 says, it's, for the, uh, it's the Lord promising to respond here. For the oppression of the poor, that's, I suppose, good people that are not uh, getting, a, getting much help. The godly man ceases, the faithful man. For the sighing of the needy, God pays attention when poor people are oppressed, when needy people sigh. Now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him. He's going to take care of the poor and the needy in safety from him that puffeth at him. The one that's talking about who's Lord over us, the bad dude. The one that speaks vanity with his neighbor, the double-hearted people. 
And then he throws, the Lord has just said in verse 5, I'm going to get up, I'm going to arise, I'm going to take care of them, I'm going to set them in safety. Those are the words of the Lord in this psalm. In answer to the plea in verse 1, help, Lord, and the Lord says, I will. Now will I arise, I will. Those are the words of the Lord. Verse 6 refers to those words. The words of the Lord, right then, right there, are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That verse has to do with what God just said, and it's a good thing. God just said it. And then in verse 7, we have to think about who it's talking about. Thou shalt keep, which means protect or preserve or guard, them. Who was he saying in verse 5 he was going to rise up and set in safety? The poor and the needy. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this and this generation. That's the other people. It's not just saying from now on. That's not a time expression so much as from these bad dudes. You're going to preserve the poor and the needy. You're going to preserve them from this nation, this generation, this wicked bunch. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. In its context, I'm pretty sure, verse 7, what God is going to protect or keep and preserve isn't, verse 6, his words. It's verse 5, his poor people, his needy people. I know good men, men I respect, that say, I can't see it that way. That just says, the words of the Lord, he's going to preserve them. I don't think that's the right way to read it. So I just thought I'd throw that out at you. That's the only scripture they've got to establish the idea that it's biblical that God preserves his word. I think it's true that God preserves his word, but there's nothing in the Bible that says so. I hope that's not confusing. Now we're going to go on. I just wanted to put that out of there in case you are challenged someday by someone that presents that and says, look at there. God preserves his word. Why are you studying this stuff? Well, it was given in languages other than English, and we're up to A.D. 430 here, and it mentions on the timeline at the very bottom, St. Patrick. That's, what, that's a good name to give him. The Roman Catholic Church claims him, but he wasn't Catholic. He was a missionary. He was a boy that rebelled against his deacon parents in Scotland, And then the whole village got raided and he was carried away a slave to Ireland. The slavers that put him to work feeding pigs in Ireland were rough and hard. And he remembered a bit of what he'd learned growing up in his church. But um, finally he escaped from the slaver and made his way to the coast on the east side of Ireland. And he's praying. He says, God, I need a way to get off of this island. It's a long way across the water. And he saw a boat. There were people loading animals on the boat. He says, I need a ride. They said, we're not taking you anywhere. He says, I can help with the animals. And God answered his prayer, and they took him in. The boat headed toward toward Scotland and missed and was swept by a storm all the way around the bottom of England over to the coast of France. And they survived the shipwreck, nearly starved, got ashore. He made his way back to Scotland 
And when he got back to Scotland, he was a changed man. He was a, a believer that knew God answered prayer, and he had the call of God on him. He says, I'm going to go back to those slave traders and those masters that I had in Ireland, and I'm going to give them the gospel. I'm going to tell them how to believe in Jesus. And so Patrick went back from Scotland to Ireland just by himself and was preaching. And by the end of his life, there were churches all up and down the length of Ireland, not Catholic churches, Christian churches. His disciples, if you will, the ones he led to the Lord, um, a generation later, they went back to Scotland to the little island called Iona, I-O-N-A, and there established what the Roman Catholics like to call a monastery. They weren't Catholic. It wasn't a monastery. It was a Bible college and a missionary training school. And out of the, the uh, training school in Iona, the, the followers that started with Patrick and the, the founder of the school, whose name was Columba, they went not just all over Scotland and not just down into England and Wales, but across the Channel and to France, and you won't believe it, but through Switzerland and down into Italy and to Rome itself, and there is still a remnant of their church, a remnant of their missions work in the city of Rome, in Italy today, these followers of Columba who had learned from Patrick. So there's a cathedral in Dublin in Ireland called St. Patrick's Cathedral. It is not a Roman Catholic place. It's a Protestant cathedral. Anyway, I just thought that's interesting. I like Patrick. This is the latest photograph we've got of Jerome. Possibly not a photograph. He was born sometime near 342. He died in 320. That's pretty old for those days. He was from Rome, but he did much of his life work in Bethlehem. He could handle Greek and Latin, but he didn't know much Hebrew. The, the text here says, the first Christians wrote their New Testament in Greek and joined it to the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. The Greek, there were a number of translations of the Old Testament into Greek. But later, he, the common language of the common people was Latin, not Greek, where he was anyway in the western part of the Roman Empire. In the eastern part, they still spoke Greek. But in the west, they needed Latin, and only highly educated people knew Greek. So this classical scholar, that is to say he knew the Latin classics, was asked to compose a complete and accurate translation of the whole Bible in Latin. He worked for 22 years, and he went to Bethlehem to do it because, as I said, he was kind of weak in Hebrew. I understand that. It's hard. But he got with a Jewish rabbi and managed to get the Bible translated from Hebrew to Latin and the New Testament from Greek to Latin. He could handle that part. There was already a common Latin Bible around in North Africa and up in the mountains in the north end of Italy and southern France and uh, Switzerland in that area, the mountain valleys. They called their Latin Bible the Vulgate. It was a popular name. It means the common Bible, like we call it the authorized King James Version. That's what it's a you know, publisher's trick. But the, Jerome said, I'm going to call mine the Vulgate. The Vulgate. It's the common Bible. It's what everybody's going to use. And it kind of worked. It became the Bible everybody used. 
the principal Bible of Western Europe for a thousand years. What do you suppose they used over in Greece and in Byzantium or Constantinople or Turkey? They used the Greek Bible because that's what they spoke. That's their birth language. They didn't have to have a translation except of the Old Testament, perhaps. Its words and its distinctive style inspired worship, theology, and art until the 1500s when movable metal type was invented and put into use by the German Gutenberg, the first significant book, not, not just a pamphlet or a tract, but the first real book printed was Jerome's Latin Vulgate. The first book printed was a Bible. Well, around 450 to 600, it took a while, but the Roman Empire falls apart. In Britain, folks named Angles, that's where we get the word English, and Saxons, those were kind of Vikings that had gone down to France and then came over to England, they overrun Britain. There were already Christians there, remember, Patrick and all? Pope Gregory, back in Rome, saw a couple slaves from England in Rome, and they were blonde and had blue eyes, and he said, they look like angels. What are they called? Angles. Huh, how about that? He, he thought it was a good pun. And he says, we need to send missionaries over because those Christians in Wales and Scotland and Ireland and England, those Christians don't worship right. <laughs> they were Christians already but they didn't do it the way the Romans wanted it done. So he sent missionaries not to gain new converts, but to mess up the Christians that were there, in my point of view. Around 500 to 900, that's a long time, but back in Israel, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, in one town in particular, a group of Jewish scholars and scribes, that's people who know how to write and read, they were called the Masoretes, and they developed a meticulous system of counting words to ensure the accuracy of each copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. Why were they copying the Hebrew Scriptures? Because they were wearing them out. It's not just the Jewish people anymore, the Christians want the Bible. And so there's a demand, and of course no printing press, they have to be carefully making copies Meanwhile, back in England, this is where we got our English Bible we're talking about mostly, there was a, a monk and kind of a poet, this doesn't say it, but he made verse paraphrases of portions of the Bible into Old English. Now, I don't think there's anybody here, not me certainly, that can read Old English. The only piece of work I know that's in Old English is Beowulf. And if you've ever read Beowulf, you've read a translation from Old English into Modern English, that the story Beowulf exists in Old English. Cædmon knew the stories of the Bible, and for the people around him that spoke English, Old English, Anglo-Saxon, he made the Bible stories into their language not verse by verse, word by word translation, but it was a start. It was the first beginning of the Bible in English, Cædmon. Around 735, that's the year that he died, a great scholar in England, here it just says Bede, 
most of the time you see reference to this man, he's called the Venerable Bede because he outlived most of the people of his day. Bede, B-E-D-E, was a monk and a scholar and he translated at least some of the Bible into the language of the day in English. We don't have any of it left, but we do have a biography of his that was written by a man that was contemporary with him in the biography of the Venerable Bede, it tells the story of him on his deathbed finishing the English translation of the Gospel of John right to the end. And he had a scribe writing it for him, and he says, is it done? He said, it's done, and then he died. So we wish we had that. He was making it for the monks and the regular people who couldn't read Latin. They were very uneducated that time of day. We go jumping, what, 600 years, and the first whole Bible is translated from Latin into the English of that day, 1382. The English of that day is called Middle English. You might be able to sort your way through Middle English. It's not just plain as day. The original version of what we call the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales are in Middle English. And usually if you read them, you read a translation into modern English. But it was English. It was getting closer to what we have today. John Wycliffe, this is before the printing press, he and his group, he was quite a scholar. He was outspoken. He didn't shy back from saying what he thought about the Roman Catholic system that was of works. He said, no, it's of faith. But um, they got the Bible translated but they had to do it from Latin. Now, most people, most people that you read about the Wycliffe Bible, they say he translated Jerome's Latin Vulgate. I personally think God got involved and he got a hold of the old Latin Bible from the mountains of Switzerland and Italy and France. I think he did. And I think he translated that, which is much closer to the right text of the Bible, into the Wycliffe translation. But you can't tell, really, because all the copies that were ever made got bought up by the crown. And while the crown was in, of England, when the crown was in possession of the Roman Catholic Church under Henry's daughter Mary, and earlier than that as well, they were very Roman Catholic. Henry VIII was Catholic until he wasn't. But people got a hold of these copies of the English Bible and changed them erased, wrote in, changed them to read more in agreement with the Vulgate of Jerome. So it's hard to tell anymore because they messed with it. <laughs> in 1408, a law was passed in England that made it illegal to translate the Bible into English. It's against the law. What are they afraid of? 1455, the book is printed, Gutenberg prints the Latin Bible, things are about to bust loose. It's like the internet. Once it's out there, you can't stop it, and the books are being printed. Here's the story about Bede. 735, he died. The monk Bede apparently kept his face warm with a big beard. He lived in Jarrow in the 700s, the most renowned Christian scholar of his day. 
called the father of English learning. His writings spanned the whole range of the knowledge of his day. He wrote most of his 40 titles in Latin when there was no written English language. For the sake of his fellow monks who did not know Latin, Bede prepared Old English, that is, Anglo-Saxon translations of portions of the Bible for them. He finished translating John's Gospel on his deathbed in 735. Not even a trace of his translations survived the destruction of the Viking invasions. He's in, remembered as the pioneer who inspired later efforts. Now, some of Bede's books do survive. He, his, his work is very important for the history of England in the early times. Why did he translate the Bible into English? So people could read it for themselves. Here's uh, another photograph <laughs> of John Wycliffe. You know I'm teasing myself when I call him photographs. It's an artist's rendering. The first translation of the whole Bible into English is named after John Wycliffe, an English priest, scholar, and diplomat. He was a scholar teaching at Oxford. John Wycliffe wrote that the Bible is God's most authoritative statement and a translation was needed so that the humblest person could learn from it. His teaching at Oxford inspired other scholars to translate Jerome's Vulgate, he said, into English of their time. This is not what I think, but it's what this says. This was done, finished, completed by 1382, and then they made copies. Each copy of their translation had to be written by hand on the fine leather, the animal skin pages. The copies took about 10 months to make. Each copy cost a year's wages. There's about 170 of these copies, handwritten copies existing today. The translators named their version the Wycliffe Bible because of the inspirational role John Wycliffe had in bringing it about. Many Christians honor Wycliffe as a symbol of zeal to spread the Bible to as many nations and languages as possible. I told you he didn't shy back from saying what he thought about the Roman Catholic system. But he was a friend of a powerful nobleman in England, and the nobleman was strong enough to resist even the king of England. And so Wycliffe, in his lifetime, was not martyred. But politics changed after, after Wycliffe had been died and buried in the churchyard in his hometown. The king became stronger, his nobleman friend died, the Roman Catholic Pope in Rome said, we've got to get him out of the hallowed ground. And they ordered it done, and the priests with their, their army, <laughs> the military, came and dug up John Wycliffe's bones out of the ground at the churchyard and burned them. And they took the ashes of his bones and they strewed it out over the river. And somebody said, and just like his doctrine, the ashes went down the narrow river to the bigger river and down to the Thames and out into the narrow sea and out into the wide ocean. And the translation of God's word has gone around the world. You, can't, you, you don't win against God. 1516, it's printing press time. Things are being printed. There is a scholar in Paris named Erasmus. He happens to be a priest because his family was a bunch of scoundrels. Erasmus had a wealthy father who died, and he was the heir, but his father's brother wanted the money. So his father's brother had the boy Erasmus put into a monastery 
and they made him a priest, and he didn't inherit. But he was brilliant. In the monastery, he made great use of the library, and then they sent him, because he was such a good student, they sent him to the university in Paris, where he spent most of the rest of his life. He was a priest, but he made a point of making it known he never, ever celebrated the Mass. He never, ever pretended that he could take wine and bread and turn it magically into the body and blood of Christ. He didn't believe that. Well, he saw Jerome's Latin Vulgate in common use, but he could read Greek. And he saw the Greek New Testament, and he kept looking back and forth between the Greek New Testament and the Latin Vulgate and saying, these are not the same. These are not the same. And so what he did was publish Greek and Latin next to each other, page by page, the whole New Testament, so people could read and study and see what the Greek said and see that they were being misled by the Latin. That was his intention, and he did accomplish that, but in doing, doing that, he made the Greek New Testament available to other scholars. In Germany, Martin Luther took the Greek New Testament that Erasmus had printed and made a Bible in German for the German-speaking people. In Switzerland, I mentioned Henry VIII had a daughter who was Roman Catholic, Queen Mary. She was persecuting, persecuting, killing the Bible teachers and translators in England, so they fled. They fled to Europe. They fled to Switzerland to survive. And in Switzerland, they took Erasmus's Greek New Testament and translated it into English. It was called the Geneva Bible. It became very, very popular in English. That's a few years later. But the Erasmus Greek New Testament made all that possible. Nine years later, William Tyndall, a student also from Oxford, translated the New Testament from Greek. His mentor, Wycliffe, couldn't do it, but he did. And it got printed in Germany. Printed so that you could make many copies and they wouldn't cost a year's wages and smuggled into England. Well, the king of England got mad and hired assassins and he was taken in the Netherlands, we'd call it, and put in prison and then, and then executed for heresy. His prayer at the stake before they strangled him and burned him, his prayer was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. 1535, ten years later, one of Wycliffe's helpers named Miles Coverdale got the whole English Bible, not just the New Testament, printed in English. Two years later, the Matthews Bible named for a, uh, a pseudonym, Thomas Matthew, it was printed by John Rogers, an exact copy of Tyndall's, really. It was Tyndall's work, except what Tyndall hadn't done. The Matthew's Bible was printed with the king's permission. 1539, there was a Bible called the Great Bible. Why'd they call it that? Because it was about, about four times as big as the ones that we have in our hands today. It was huge. Because of it, they made a separate lectern in the church. There's the pulpit the preacher preached at and another one where the Bible was attached. And they would spend more time listening to somebody read the Bible than they would listening to a made-up 
message. It was called the Great Bible or the Chained Bible because they were chained to the church pillars to avoid theft. Henry VIII dies. He has a son named Edward. Edward is a young teenager, and he only lives for several years, and then he dies. So Henry's daughter, Mary, whose mother was the Spanish princess, Roman Catholic Spanish princess, Mary is Roman Catholic, and she outlaws English Bible versions by Protestants, and it says persecutes Protestant leaders. This is where the, the expression Bloody Mary comes from. There's nursery rhymes about Mary, Mary, quite contrary, that are really a reference to this bloody time in England where Mary was killing people. We go on. This is a picture of William Tyndall, Oxford. He could speak five languages so well that it was said of him that it didn't matter which language you addressed him in, you'd think that he was speaking in his native language. He asked for permission to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew and English, was denied. He wanted to translate from Greek and Hebrew because those were the languages in which the Bible was written. He left England and translated the New Testament in Germany, had it printed. Thousands of Tyndall's New Testament were smuggled into England. Henry VIII offered Tyndall safe passage back to England. Tyndall refused to return unless the king approved his translation. Henry VIII would not. In 1536, he was tricked and imprisoned and burned at the stake. His dying words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. A year later, the Matthews Bible, much of it exactly the same as the Tyndall Bible, was printed with the king's permission. Tyndall is called the father of the English Bible because much of the style and vocabulary of the King James Version Bible is traceable to his work. They said of the part of the Bible that he translated, 90 to 95 percent of it is still what we have in the King James Bible. He didn't do all of the Old Testament, but he did the whole New Testament. He did the Pentateuch and several of the historical books, and then he died. Yeah. 1560, I mentioned the Geneva Bible. Hundreds of people flee to Switzerland to avoid persecution. A new English translation is printed in Geneva, and it's like the Schofield Reference Bible. It's got notes in it. It's got helps in it. Oh, it became so popular. I mean, Tyndall's was good, but this became really popular in England. Every household pretty much had one, and they, they used, like we use the Schofield Bible, they read the notes and the helps. It was a good thing. It actually took several, uh, more than 100 years before the King James Bible got more popular than the Geneva Bible in England after it was published. Well, the king didn't like the Geneva Bible, so he had the bishops put together a translation. It kind of copied from it, but didn't have the notes in it. Whoops, I went past where I meant to go. The Roman Catholic Church is paying attention. There's English Bibles coming out. There are a whole lot of English Roman Catholic people, and they're not happy with the Vulgate, so the church ordered, and in these two towns in France, in Reims and in Douai, the English Bible for the Catholic Church was done, and it was done just before the King James Bible. They changed it, they re-edited it after the King James came out and became so popular to make it more like the King James Bible. 1611, you know, is the year they finished and caused the King James Bible to be printed. 
54 scholars, uh, one or two of them died before it was done, but uh, basically a great, great plan for translation. And they used the Bishop's Bible and Greek and Hebrew texts. They looked at other things as well. They had Luther's Bible and, and a variety of other Bibles. And then it mentions 1881. I, I did that again, sorry. 1881. There's something called the English Revised Version. It was supposed to be just an updating of the King James translation. But instead of updating the language, they went to an entirely different Greek New Testament text over the objection of one of the scholars on the committee who was outvoted by Westcott and Hort. And so it's based on a different New Testament text, and every modern translation since then has been based on this wrong New Testament text, different than the King James Bible, I think. And from 1850 to present, many New English translations, the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered, the earliest portions of the Old Testament, prove remarkable reliability of the transmission of the Old Testament. Now, less words, more pictures. This is what stone carving looked like. This is a clay tablet. There's a leather thing, and those letters don't look anything like any language I know. I think they are called archaic Hebrew, but uh, they exist. Those are supposed to be, um, those are actual artifacts that exist from 1500 to 400 B.C. This is a little bit of the New Testament that still exists, and it's a fragment from John chapter 18, it was copied in Greek on a piece of papyrus in a book, and it says around A.D. 110 to 130, if it was copied in 110, it had to exist a good while before that. So the New Testament dates, um, as a good study, sometime we'll look at that, but the Bibles were copied on papyrus, leather sometimes, but later papyrus, which is that reed in Egypt that makes a product something like paper. A papyrus codex, that is what we would call a book, a bound volume made from sheets folded and sewn together, sometimes with a cover. And after the turn of Jesus' lifetime, they were used more than scrolls in the centuries since then, codexes. Codex is a book instead of a scroll. Fine quality animal skins from calves or antelopes, that's called vellum. Or sheeps or goats, that's called parchment, were used for over a thousand years to make copies of the Bible. From 300 to 1400, those are all handwritten copies. Two of the oldest vellum copies that exist today are the one in the Vatican Library and the Sinaitic Codex that's in the British Museum in London. Wycliffe Bibles were written by hand on vellum in the 13 and 1400s. Some copies took 10 months to two years to produce and cost a year's wages. The Gutenberg Bible was the first book to be printed on a printing press with movable metal type in 1455. Now we look back at the timeline way back in the Old Testament. Events were written down as early as the 2,000 years before Christ in Hebrew a little bit of Daniel's in Aramaic, over centuries. In the book of Exodus, several times, the Lord tells Moses to write in a book. 
somebody asked the other day, and I pointed out Genesis chapter 5 starts out with the words, the book of the generations of Adam. This is not a new idea, the idea of writing things down in a book. It wasn't just Moses that learned how to write. I wouldn't be surprised if Adam didn't know how to write. He knew a lot more than I do about a lot of things. Other Old Testament writers inspired by God included leaders, kings, and prophets. Together, these writings on leather scrolls and other materials are called the Hebrew Scriptures. They're called the Old Testament. Around 500 B.C., Ezra, who had returned from captivity in Babylon, a priest and a scribe collected and arranged some of the books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, according to Jewish tradition around 450 B.C., and that is not a good picture of Ezra. <laughs> this mentions the Septuagint. It mentions the unusual mythology tradition that says 72 men made it in 70 days, and it was done independently, and they came out identical. Just not right. There are some papyrus plants down in Egypt. It can be cut into strips and pressed into make a writing material of it. The Egyptians would write with reed pens on papyrus product that was a lot like paper. The New Testament books are probably first written down on papyrus scrolls. Later Christians began to copy them on sheets of papyrus, which are bound and put between two pieces of wood or tablets for covers. This form of early book is called a codex. In the time of Jesus, Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures often. He says he did not come to destroy the scriptures, but to fulfill them. He says to his disciples, These are the words which I spake unto you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. In those words of Jesus, we see reference to the entire part that we call the Old Testament. The law of Moses were the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets, the way the Jews referred to them, were everything from Joshua and Judges through the end of Malachi. And Job and the Psalms and the others, they just called the writings, or they, they called them the Psalms in Jesus' words. Those are the three parts of the Old Testament we count 39 books, they counted 22 books by lumping them together, but they had the same Old Testament that we did, and Jesus referred to it here. He did not refer to those extra writings that were not to be included in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter, and Jude wrote the Gospels. They wrote history letters. They wrote history, they wrote letters to other Christians, and they wrote the Revelation between 45 and 100, the writers quote from all but eight of the Old Testament books. These writings in Greek are copied and circulated so that by about 150 AD, there's wide enough use of them to speak about the New Testament, the New Covenant, the book that goes along with the Old Testament. In 90 AD, some Jewish elders got together in a town called Jamnia and they looked and said, this is the book, these are the books that we consider the canon. This is the words of God, and it's the 30, they called it the 22, but it was the 39 books. It did not include the Apocrypha, 
and they considered it authoritative. That's what the Jewish people all agreed to. The apocrypha books were known. They weren't bad books, but they weren't Bible. They were not at the same level as God's word. Earliest translations. Somewhere 200 to 300, it was translated into Latin and Coptic in Egypt and Syriac in Syria. You do remember that a lot of activity up in Antioch of Syria where they sent Paul and Barnabas out. There's a little bit of Coptic. It doesn't look that much different from Greek. The church fathers accepted the writing of the Gospels and Paul's letters as canonical, which is a Greek word, kanon, that means the ruler. It, it was re referred to a straight piece of reed called a cane that could be used for measuring or drawing a straight line, and so it measured up if it was canonical, the rule of faith and truth. A scholar in the 400s listed 21 approved New Testament books. Eusebius listed 22 accepted books. He was an historian in the third century. They were collected and circulated throughout the Mediterranean. By the time of Constantine, the Roman Empire legalized Christianity in 313. By 400 AD, the same 27 New Testament books that we use today had been accepted by the whole church all the way in the east, all the way in the west, in the areas where it was translated into the other languages, in Egypt and in Syria, and up into the other mountains and places. Confirmed by Athanasius, Jerome, Augustine, and three separate church councils. They just referred to it. They didn't make the decision. They just referred to it. These are the books. The 27 books of the New Testament were formally confirmed as canonical by a synod, a meeting of the leaders in Carthage in 397. But for three centuries, they'd all been used by the church of Christ in all the different cities, and it was just recognizing what the people of God had already recognized. Now we're getting back into kind of a review thing with Jerome here. I would mention, this is somewhat repetitive, somewhat dry, but it gets you a foundation of the idea. Where did, where did this come from? I didn't just, it didn't just show up in the bookstore because Oxford decided to print it. It took many men, many lifetimes, giving up what they might have done with their brilliance to just make God's word without changes safely come down to us today. It's not magic that it's in a leather cover as in my hand, but it is the word of God that was inspired by God and given to us so that we could read in it the story about Jesus and know that we have salvation, forgiveness of our sins, promise of a home in heaven. We finished our study in the Gospel of John this morning in Sunday school, and that's how he ends up. He says, oh, if we were going to write all the books that should be written, I don't think the world would contain it all. But these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you might believe, you might have life through his name. I'm so glad we have a Bible 
we call the Holy Bible. The whole thing, the Word of God. It contains Satan's talk too. It contains men's lies. But it contains exactly what God wanted it to contain. No less, no more. We don't have to pray for some exalted church leader to stand up and tell us this is what's right and true and this other's not because we've got it in our hand. We are expected to know what we, are ava- what we have available to us. It's res- our responsibility, each one, to learn as much as we can, to teach, to share the gospel as much as we can. Well, you've been very quiet, and I appreciate your attention. I hope you're not, I'm not going to disturb you, wake you up. <laughs> I'm going to put this on my hand. You know we let the hand represent each and every one of us, and the wallet represents sin. Why do I have it on my hand? Because I'm a sinner. I had a problem but Jesus solved the problem before I was born. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you could let this hand with the glove represent Jesus Christ. It says, He, the Father, made Him, the Son, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. John tells us Jesus was sent by the Father so that we could believe in Him and have eternal life, the promise of eternal life. This makes it make sense, the promise is to anyone who will believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we close this study tonight, we, we think we could have done a better job. But we pray that, Father, if there's any folks listening who have not trusted in Jesus, that they will understand that most important thought, that Jesus is the Savior. And we can believe in him and we can be safe. We can be sure of it because of the word of God, but we can believe in him and we'll be safe. Not because we know Hebrew or Greek, but because we know Jesus. If anybody's listening that's never believed in him, we pray, Father, they would do so right now. And thank you for these folks who listen so patiently. In Jesus' name.